For the past several weeks, we have been in a sermon series called Whole Life Worship. And so far, we've discussed how our Sunday gathered worship, what we do here on Sundays, is meant to spill out into our Mondays. And um, as we scatter where God has placed us, we've also explored this idea that our everyday story is somehow connected to God's bigger story, and even our ordinary tasks matter to God. We've even talked about how the words out of our mouth change the environment, because everything is Christ. And today we're going to wrap up the series, and we're really going to um, take everything that we've learned and really kind of put it in a, the correct framework. And as I started thinking about this series, I started thinking about when I joined the Marine Corps. And one of the big things as a Marine was being a marksman. So marksmanship was a big deal in the Marine Corps. And I had never shot a weapon before, a gun before, ever in my life. I was from the L.A. area. We didn't have ranges. I, we just you never did anything if, if legally. And so, um, but I never did it. And so when I got to the Marine Corps, they, they taught us all these things. They taught us the fundamentals and the basics of marksmanship. And they taught us how to fire a weapon from five yards all the way to 500 yards and beyond. And these fundamentals, these basics, really served me well in my career, and especially during times of war. And things changed. When I first came in the Marine Corps, we were using iron sights, which is you know just a little piece of iron, and you had to figure it out. And... As I, I progressed in my career, equipment changed. Scopes, you got these cool scopes, everything looked great, but the fundamentals and the basics still remained the same. You had to know the fundamentals and the basics to shoot right. And for us, oftentimes, it could look like we are getting worship right. We look good, we sing good, we have great music. When we go out and we're scattered, we could say the right theological things to people. You, I could preach good. But we could be really just totally detached from true worship. Because true worship is a heart that is devoted to loving Christ that fuels our everyday actions. So the title of today's message is The Heart of Worship. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I want to give you a little context for the, in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was the one in the Gospels we read that Jesus called the one whom Jesus loved. And so the Apostle John is, is elderly at this time. And during this time, um, the Roman government is starting to put a little bit of persecution on this growing Christian church. And so John, being the only surviving apostle, ends up... Um, cast it to and banished to this island of Patmos. And while he's on this island, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus addresses seven churches in the very beginning of, of the book of Revelation. And these are real churches. They're historic churches, but they're also a type of church that exists throughout the age. And the first church that he addresses is the church at Ephesus. Now, that word, that name, Ephesus, should sound pretty familiar to us. There's a, a book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul. And so Ephesus was this major, diverse metropolis in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And it was heavily steeped in occult and cultic 
practices. And originally, the Apostle Paul plants a church there. And this is, this is uh, we read this in the book of Acts. And he plants a church there, and then he stays there for three years. Then he leaves, and he, he, he sends his um, protege Timothy, which we get the books first and second Timothy from. He sends his protege to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And then years on down the line, the apostle John ends up being the pastor at the church at Ephesus. So this church had a really good legacy. They had great pastors. I mean, they had the apostle Paul, Timothy, and John. Yet they forgot the basics and the fundamentals. And today what I want to do is I want to go back. I want to look at the fundamentals and the basics of worship and look at three things to ground our whole life worship. So let me pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for this time. We bless you and we just entreat you by your Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we do not know. Please, we just pray, Lord, speak to our hearts at this time. May you be, be given the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Pray. Amen. The first thing we see is that the heart of worship keeps Jesus Christ the main thing. The fact is, is that Christ cares about the heart of worship. He cares how we worship. We read in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him. Him is referring to Jesus. So these are Jesus' words. Who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So there's a little bit of imagery here I want to explain. So these are the words of Christ who holds, who has in his grip, the seven stars. And when we see stars in the book of Revelation, it's referring to pastors. So he's saying, who holds the seven stars? Who says, you know, pastors don't speak on their own accord. They are, are people who speak on the behalf of Christ. They are Christ's people. They're leaders. And so as a pastor, I can't just say what I want. I have to take my direction from Christ. So Christ holds the pastor in his right hand and who walks at this, and when he says walks, it's this present tense, who, who walks among these, these lampstands. What are these lampstands? Lampstands in the book of Revelation mean churches. So Christ is present in his church then and at this very moment. Christ is present. So he's saying, listen, pastors, people in the church, listen. This is what Christ says. And so he's about ready to tell us and talk to us about worship. We see that Christ cares how we worship. Why? Because we are Christ's church. Church is all about Christ. He has died for his church and he deeply cares how we worship him. And we see that the heart of worship is, is, is not just about mere appearances. Verse 2 says, I know your deeds, your hard work. That hard work means, you're, I know you're per, you're, you've been productive for the gospel and your perseverance, that you have this inward fortitude and adversity for the gospel. And, and they had, they had experienced some persecution. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. So this is, at this time, there's all these false people claiming to be apostles, claiming to have the anointing of the Spirit and this new teaching. And they're testing these people. They're saying, no, you're wrong. You're lying to people. And you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my, my namesake. You've suffered for me. They've suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. And they haven't grown weary. They haven't given up. And so we see that the church in Ephesus is in this culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel, yet they're standing firm. 
and their success, they're successful in ministry. And Christ is, is, is commending them. He's saying, you're doing a great job. It looks like they're serving well. Their, their, their community service is great. Their dedication, their persevering is great. And they obviously had some really good theology. I mean, they had the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. How can they not have good theology? And by all accounts, we look at this and we go, this is a really good church. We want to be like this church. But it doesn't end there. Then he says this, verse 4, yet I hold this against you. And can I just say, these are six words you do not want to hear from Jesus. <laughs> yet I hold this against you. And so we see that the heart of worship focuses on the main thing. So well, the question is, what is the main thing? We continue on. You have forsaken or you have abandoned. The word means you just abandoned the love you had at first. The love that precedes all other loves. You've abandoned that. So we see that the church at Ephesus had great pastors. They had a great legacy. They had a great ministry. But they also had a really great big heart issue. And it seems like they were just going through the motions. They had forgotten the main thing. We see that love and passion and motivation for Jesus is the main thing. The fact is, is we can all gather in this room, but if it's not first and foremost about glorifying Jesus Christ, it's just a bunch of people in a room. It's not truly worship. And when everything, when Christ becomes the main thing in our life, and it means even our ordinary things transform into worship. So they're going through the motions. That's not worship. But if Christ is number one, if he's at the center of the heart, if it's all about Christ, everything they do then all of a sudden transforms and becomes worship. And that's for us as well. Everything you do in your ordinary life, if Christ is at the center of it, it becomes worship to him. And this, this love spills on over to others and it transforms everything. Now, I told you that as, as a Marine, things had changed. I had all these bells and whistles on my weapon. Like, I had a scope. I had a big giant like light. I had like a little mini GPS on it. I looked pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. I, I looked like something on a video game. And yet... It still came down, down to the fundamentals. Let's face it, the main thing is the fundamentals. I, I still had to learn and understand the fundamentals in order to shoot properly, no, how, no, no matter how good I looked or how cool I looked. And let's face it with us, the main thing doesn't always remain the main thing. You see, without the love of Christ, our service becomes all about social justice and reform and making us feel good and giving us notoriety. Gathered worship, what we do right now, becomes optional. And it becomes about being entertained and fed. Our scattered worship as we leave here becomes, becomes a recommendation. And, and often it just becomes a burden. And our good theology becomes an academic point of pride, ready to just be wielded on anyone that gets in our way. But with Christ-centered love, our service becomes an opportunity to show people the love of Christ. Our gathered worship time, what we do here, becomes a celebration of just rendering everything to God. Our scattered worship when we leave here becomes an opportunity, opportunity to, to redeem our culture for Christ. 
Remember, everything is Christ. Every, everything is Christ. And our theology, our theology brings us to our knees in humble adoration because as we, as we study who God is, we realize he is so much bigger and so much better than we could possibly think. And it just drives us to our knees. So the question is, is loving Christ the main thing in your life and in the life of this church? And we're going to be tested on this. And some of us have already been tested on this. We're tested on this every day. I mean, some of us don't have heat. And it's like, I don't even want to get up out of bed right now. It's cold. I just want to be hunkered down in my bed. I don't want to go worship with God's people. I'm fine. Or we get tested with just busyness and life stuff. We're all going to be tested on this, and we are being tested on this, and sometimes we find ourselves off track on this. So the question is, is how do we get back on track? What we see, second point is, the heart of worship remembers the gospel. Now, I would go to the range, and especially when I was doing like long-range shooting from 500, um, 500 yards, and you go, to, you go to shoot, especially if I was doing it from the standing, I would go and I would stand up. And when you shoot and when you aim at something from 500 yards, the, the, the target looks so small. And the whole key is, is as you breathe in, you breathe out. And as finally, when you settle your breath, your breathing and, and you finally exhale, that's you get a bit like a split second to shoot where you're stable enough. If you don't, you try to like, you try to muscle it and you try to like, okay, I'm out of breath. I'm trying to, and you start to shake and you stay, start to wobble. And then you just have to say, stop. You have to stop. You have to say, you know what? I got to reset. Let me do this all over again. And so we're called to reset sometimes in our lives because we get off track and we just need to stop, take a breath and reset. And we're given three commands to get us back on track. The first thing is consider what went wrong. We need to consider what, what went wrong in our lives. So we see verse five, consider how far you have fallen. We need to consider who we were, what Christ has done, and what are we called to. We have to ask ourselves, who has usurped the throne of our heart that belongs to Christ? Something is, is taken over our hearts, and it's not Christ. Who is it? What is it? We need to ask ourselves. We see this all the time. It could be job ambition. It could be family. It could be it could be whatever. And you see, Christ is number one. He's not going to take second place to anything else. And so whatever that is, even good things, you see, there's things in our life that are really good things. And there's a fine line between things being really good and things being an idol of our lives. And it all comes down to who's sitting on the throne of our hearts. And once that thing displaces Christ from our hearts, it becomes an idol. And it's no longer a good thing. So we have to ask ourselves, so how do we consider this? What, what's the mechanism? What, how do we do this? We have to look at God's word. We've got to go back to God's word. And I find this interesting that the Apostle Paul, who writes to the church at Ephesus, that's one of the first things he reminds them of who they were, what Christ has done, and what they're called to. And so we read in, in Ephesians 2, verse 1, As for you, you are dead and your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us 
lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, listen, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That doesn't, people don't get excited at that. Here's the thing. It says we were dead in our transgressions. The Apostle Paul is saying, and the way the Greek renders it, is we were so spiritually dead, we were a bag of bones. We couldn't do anything for ourselves, spiritually speaking. And we were sinners. Sinners, I'm using the word sin because we don't like to use the word sin. We didn't just mess up. We sinned against a holy God. And that separated us from God. And because God is a just God, we deserved punishment. We deserved God's wrath. That's who we were. That's who we are by nature and by choice. But verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen. Amen. It is by grace you have been saved. Not because you figured it out. Not because you're just so lovable. Not because you did some really good things and you worked really hard. It's by God's grace. His unmerited favor that you are saved. Because of his great love and mercy. Because that's who God is. He's perfectly just, but he's perfectly loving. And we see that these things come crashing together at the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ comes down, the Son of God, clothed in flesh, fully God, fully human, lives a perfect and righteous life, and is nailed to the cross. And it's the first time he bears the weight of our sin and he feels the wrath of the Father, the wrath that we deserved. And he dies and he's buried. But three days later, he's resurrected. Three days later. And it's the Father saying, I accept that sacrifice. He's resurrected. And we put our faith and trust in him. We too are resurrected to do new life. It is by grace you've been saved. And because of this, we're called to worship him in all that we do. So we need to consider this. What went wrong? Second thing we need to do is we need to change direction. We re- you hear the word repent. Change our direction. The word repent means to change our current direction and move from that direction. Repentance is really hard. Tim Keller writes, from the moment of the fall, humankind has suffered from, um, from a moral schizophrenia, neither able to deny sin- sinfulness or to acknowledge it for what it is. We don't even like to say that we're a sinner, that we, that, that we sinned against God. We don't even like to admit that there's things that we need to repent of. And we're called to adopt a lifestyle of repentance. Hear me, a lifestyle of repentance, not a lifestyle of remorse. Remorse says, I can't believe I did that. It's a lifestyle of repentance. Not a lifestyle of resolution. Oh, I promise I will never do that again. How many times have we said that? I'll never do that again. No, a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of worship that confesses sin, it abandons sin, and it moves in the direction of truth, freedom, and the love only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this. A couple weeks ago, my mom and my daughter Madison came down and they visited me from from California. Now, they love L.L. Bean. They wanted to go up to L.L. Bean. 
up in Freeport. L.L. Bean is an anomaly if you're from California, by the way, okay? So I want you guys to go on this trip with me to L.L. Bean. Will you guys come with me? Are you, you going to come with me? Yeah. All right, there we go. So my Ford Focus is out there after service. We're all going to jump in there. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it, all right? So here we go. Service is over. We jump in my Ford Focus. It's crammed, but we're, all, we're, we're God's people. We're a family. Everything's great. So we go. We get on 495. We're heading to Freeport, and I start heading toward Worcester. What, what, what's wrong? Oh, oh, sorry. It's the wrong way. Okay, got it. So then let's say I go, and I turn the car around, and then I go ahead, and I put it in park. What? I, I changed direction. But we're never getting there, right? Some of us, I have to put my foot on the gas. We need to go in that direction. We need to go towards Maine. And some of us in our lives, we go, oh, yes, I need to repent. We change direction. Then we put our, our lives in park. And we go, I don't know why change isn't happening. What's wrong? I repented. So we're called to repent. Repentance is, is action. It's moving towards the direction, a certain direction away from our sin. It's movement. And the last thing we're commanded to do to get back on track is to cut it out. <laughs> do the things that you did at first. Do the things you did at first. You know, I don't know about you, but when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was so happy. I just had this little giddy up in my step. Everything changed. The way I interacted with people, my family, at work. Well, at the time I was a kid, so school. Everything changed. Why did everything change? Because I was so very aware of my sinful condition. I was so very aware of it. I knew I was a sinner deserving of God's wrath, and by grace I was saved. And that was just really, really good news. It was really good news. And so everything changed. And I, 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 I suspect that that was the same thing for you. But somewhere along the line, this has changed for many of us. You see, for many of us, our sin really isn't that bad in our own minds. It's really not that bad. I don't really sin against God. I didn't really sin against God. There's no, it's not that, I'm not that bad of a person. And because our sin's not that bad, God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't that good. You see, if we don't need something and we don't get this immediate happiness in our life, it immediately becomes irrelevant to us. That's just anything in our lives. We're very pragmatic in our lives. Well, this isn't, this isn't that big of a deal. And, and for many of us, sin has been marginalized. And because of this, Christ has been customized. Christ is just my own whoever. He's okay with whatever I do. And because Christ has been customized, the cross has been scandalized. And because the cross has been scandalized, the gospel has been trivialized. And it just becomes okay news. And we need to cut it out. And we need to remember the true gospel because the true Jesus takes this very seriously. This is what he says. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Christ is saying, I'll remove your church from you. I want churches 
that worship me because it's all about me. It's all about my glory. And if you're not doing that, you're no longer a church. I'll remove it from you. And so the question for us is when, when we gather right now, like what we're doing on Sunday, and visitors walk through that door, or when we scatter and we go into our workplaces or school or the grocery store or wherever we're at, do things change? And I'm not talking because things change because we grab our Bibles and we start banging people over the head with them and say, you're a sinner. I'm saying, does the environment change? When someone comes in here and they're a visitor, do they go, I don't really get this Jesus thing and why this guy's going all crazy up here. But gosh, there's something different about this place. And I don't mean a creepy different. I mean a good difference. And when you go into your every day and, 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 you're, and you're just living and you're worshiping, the people go, I'm really attracted to this and I don't really get it. But I really, there's something different about that person and the environment has changed. Does that happen? You see, the gospel is all about transformation and Christ reconciling all things. And this transformation starts with us. And it starts with us understanding our need for the transformation of the gospel. And so the question is, do you believe in the transformative power of the gospel? So how, how do we remember this? Because we forget. And I've, you, I said this before. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And some of you say, well, what does that look like, Brian? I hear you say this. What does it mean to preach the gospel to myself every single day? It means you wake up in the morning. I'll be honest with you, the first thing I think about in the morning is me. I don't think I'm alone on this. I'm hungry. Man, I'm, I'm cold. I'm annoyed because Erica woke up early. She's not here, so I can say it. All right. <coughs> don't tell her. Uh, the point is, I need to sit there and go, before my feet hit the floor, go, God, I am, I am a sinner. I don't even know why. Your grace is so amazing to me. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for saving me. I know I didn't figure this out because I'm not that smart. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for what Jesus has done and thank you for eternal life. And I need to then put my feet on the ground. And during your, when you're in your day and you're, you're at work or you're, you're, with, you're with your spouse or your kids or whatever and you have one of those interactions or something doesn't go right and you're like, oh man, I just totally said the wrong thing or, or I did the wrong thing or I was a total jerk, you know, in the car. I cut this person off and maybe I had a word for him or something. Uh, whatever. Instead of sitting there and going, I'm the worst human being ever and just feeling guilt and guilt and guilt, you sit there and you say, you know what? That was wrong, God. But it's by grace I am saved. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you. You see, when we harbor guilt and we keep, we keep that on, we're like, I'm not worthy, we're actually denying the efficacy of the cross, what Jesus has done. We sit there and we say, God, your grace is so big, it covered that, and thank you, thank you, thank you. And, it, and we just continually do that. We constantly preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. This is worship. This is worship. Finally, the heart of worship lives victoriously. Verse 7 says, Whoever has ears, Jesus is saying, listen up. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. 
On Thursdays and Fridays, we watch my nephew Corbin. Corbin. My nephew Corbin's 14. He's an apathetic teenager. And he, he comes in, and I, you barely get a word out of this kid. You know, he's just like, because anyone above the age of, like, 20 is, like, old to him. And it's like, oh, oh, you know the, the groans. Anyways, if you have teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so he comes in there, and he loves Fortnite. I don't even know what Fortnite is. I'll be honest with you. It's a video game. I'm like, and I'm like, I don't get it. Why is this a global phenomenon? I have no idea. So I go to Corbin and I say, kid doesn't talk to me. And I say, Corbin, explain to me what like Fortnite is and why you like it. And all of a sudden, just he gets all like crazy, he's animated. I like it. He talks about these skins. Like it's basically like an, a digital outfit that he pays money for. It doesn't give him any sort of special power in the game or any. It just it looks different. And I'm like, that makes no sense. And I, and I want to say you're wasting money, but anyway, so I go and I'm like, okay, so tell me. I said, no, but why do you like to play it? Like, you're consumed with this. What is it about? How do you feel? And all of a sudden, this kid who doesn't say much, who doesn't get introspective, goes, you know, Uncle Brian, he gets real serious. He says, I just want to win at something. I just feel like everywhere I go, I'm losing. I'm losing at like life. I just want to win. And this gives me an opportunity to win at something. And I think that he's not too far off from how many of us feel in life. We just want to win. It just seems like every time, wherever we go, something is, life is just beating us up. And the facts on the ground here in New England is that being a Bible-believing, gospel-centered disciple of Jesus Christ, especially in New England, is very difficult. People don't even know when we talk about Jesus and the cross and all this stuff. They're like, what are you talking about? That's weird. I don't even get it. And we're like, oh my gosh. Like, this is crazy. And, and we're, we're, we're met with adversity at times. And as you listen today, maybe you feel discouraged and, and anxious and, and guilty. And you feel this heaviness in life. You just want to win. You just want to win. And here we read that we are victorious. The one who is victorious that word victorious means that we share in the victory of Christ. We shared in the victory of Christ on the cross. We share in the victory of Christ now. And we will share in the victory of Christ when he returns. It's a continual victory. This isn't health and wealth stuff. This is saying that this is the reality in which we live in. We are victorious. It doesn't change our circumstances. But in a cosmic sense, we are victorious in Christ. Now and forever. Christ has overcome the world, therefore we overcome. 2 Corinthians 4. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I say this often, and I have to keep on repeating this, but it's a spoiler alert. We win. Guys, we win. And we need to live in the victory of Christ. We're not people who are apathetic. We win in Christ. We win in Christ. And we walk in that victory. And that's what shapes our reality is the fact that we overcome in Christ. And this gives us confidence and boldness. And here's the thing about the world. It craves confidence and boldness. And we have the power of Christ, the good news of the, of the gospel. And it empowers us. It craves it. And we're the people who are called to bring it and redeem the culture for Christ. 
As I close, I'm, I'm way over, but it's the gospel, so. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting with Pastor John. We went to a business down in, in um, Andover, right by the Mill District, right where the founders of our church, the Mill, they owned. We're looking at the Shoshin. We're just chilling out in the same area. And I, and I said, I just had this thing. I was like, you know, back in the 1800s, the founders of our church sat here looking at the same river in the same place, saying, how are we going to change the culture for Christ? How are we going to stand firm in the gospel? How are we going to love and worship Christ in all that we do? In the same place. And we are the recipients of that legacy. For them making Christ the center of everything. And we have a responsibility to continue that legacy. No matter how hard or how, how hard it is here in New England. So maybe this whole series you've asked, what is whole life worship all about? Whole life worship is about Jesus Christ and our everyday response in worship. That's what it is. It's about our everyday response in worship. And so th here's the thing. And I'm going to close on this. Worship is about Jesus now because it's going to be about Jesus forever, and it is about him forever. I want you to close your eyes. This is a picture of the heavenly throne room. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Worship is about Christ now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us. May you give us a heart of worship that puts Christ at the center of everything. Lord Jesus, we just want to honor you and worship you and glorify you in all things. Give us the strength and the boldness and the wisdom to carry this out in our everyday lives. May we not compartmentalize our lives because everything is yours. Give us strength, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to win because you have overcome the world. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.